Well, good morning. It's good to be back with you today. Hope you all had a good week. And, uh, we will open back up to Hebrews 2 today. This should be our last day in this chapter. Let's open to Hebrews 2. We'll read the same passage we've been considering the last few weeks, beginning in verse 5. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone." For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise, and again I will put my trust in him, and again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Let's ask the Lord's blessing on this morning. Father, we come to you again this morning after finishing out a busy week with hardships and trials and blessings. We ask that this morning you would encourage our hearts through your word. We pray that you would guide our study, that you would guide our attention. And we pray that you would increase our knowledge of the truth this morning. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.
Well, last week we spent most of our time looking at that little phrase in verse 10, bringing many sons to glory. And we spent pretty much our whole, whole hour together looking at the idea of our identity as sons of God and specifically our inheritance that we have as sons. And we focused mainly on our relationship with the Father as his children and our identity as fellow heirs with Christ, that we, as sons of God in Christ, share an inheritance that the Son of God has. Today, the text I want us to consider turns our attention briefly from looking at our relationship primarily to the Father to now our, pri- our relationship with Christ. So today I want us to focus on not our being sons of God, but on our being brothers of Christ. And we touched on that just briefly at the end of last week. But our text for this morning begins here in the second half of verse 11. And our first observation this morning is a very simple one. But Christ calls those whom he sanctifies brothers. Now in the verse it says that he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. And we've looked at that previously as referring to the humanity that Christ shares with his people. And then in the second half of verse 11, we we read in a sense why that's significant, that we all have one source. And we read this phrase, that is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. So before we jump into this a whole lot, I want us to, to look at this idea here of Christ not being ashamed to call us brothers. In the flow of the text, it's fairly easy to read over and not think much about. But I think we've all had the experience of being in some public place with family and having a family member do something that is somewhat embarrassing or maybe a little bit more than somewhat embarrassing and having the reaction that we would rather not be known at that time to be associated with that person. And uh, it's something that happens not uncommonly. You know, we, we joke about it. But I want us to think a little bit about Christ not being ashamed to have us named as his family and to name us as his brothers. And there's many things we could say about Christ, but to keep it in the flow of our text, in the flow of the argument of Hebrews, just to call back to our mind again, things we've looked at, but things that we know about Christ, specifically from Hebrews, that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, Jesus is the exact imprint of the nature of God. Jesus receives the worship of angels. Jesus sits at the right hand and rules with God. And what do we read about mankind? That he's created in a lower station even than the angels who worship Christ, right? So that one whom angels worship, the one who is preexistent, for all time, the one who has existed with his Father for all eternity, he now, because he has chosen to come and identify himself with mankind, now he calls us brothers, and he's not ashamed to do it. 
think again in the whole scope of the history, the, the scripture history, right? That mankind is created in perfection and sins, transgresses the law of God, makes himself an enemy of God. And now God the Son is becoming like those people so that he can call them brothers. I think that's kind of an amazing, amazing reality there. So moving on. The author moves here to some more quotations from the Old Testament to kind of prove his point that Jesus thinks of us as his brothers. And we read this first quote in in verse 12. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Now, the, the wonder that he is not ashamed to call us his brothers, I think is increased by two things from this verse. And first, look at who he's speaking to when he calls us brothers. He says, I will tell of your name to my brothers. Christ is speaking to the Father here in this verse. And as we've seen in Hebrews already, kind of in the course of the book, there's there's this key idea of mankind's distance from God that Jesus, as the final mediator, bridges. He brings us to God. So think about it this way, in, in this verse. It's one thing to acknowledge to my friend, let's say if, if my, my brother does something kind of embarrassing, and I have a friend who I'm really close with already, and I say to him, yeah, that's, that's just my brother, you know, he does things like that. But then what if I'm standing before you know, the president or a future employer that I want to have a good opinion of me or something, and my brother does something uh, less than great. I'm a little bit less inclined to name him as my brother the more important the person is who I'm, I'm speaking with. But Christ, in speaking to the Father, the one who is bringing sons to glory, the one who found it fitting to perfect Christ through suffering, he's speaking to that father and names us as his brothers. I think that kind of just adds to to the the wonder of that statement. But one other thing I want us to consider here is that he calls us brothers in his glorified state. And what, what do I mean by that? Well, If you'll turn with me to Psalm 22, that's where this quote is originally coming from. In Psalm 22, we have what is potentially one of the the clearest examples of a psalm that is is, uh, ultimately talking about Christ and really being spoken by Christ. And we recognize that when we just look at the first verse here in Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
And as soon as we hear those words, instantly we think of Christ on the cross saying those words as he's being crucified. But all through this psalm, we have different references that, as we find out later, come to be applied to Christ. In verse 18, or 17 and 18, we read this, I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. This whole first half of the psalm, in a sense, can be looked at as somewhat of a a prophecy of the sufferings that the Messiah is going to go through on behalf of his people. But the first 18 verses here are all, in a sense, a description of the suffering he's going through. But in verse 19, the psalm takes a bit of a turn, and we read this. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of wild oxen. So we have in these first verses this, this description of his suffering. And then in verses 19 through 21, we have this plea for deliverance. And then ending in verse 21 there with that statement that you have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. Christ ultimately is delivered from that suffering as he rises from the dead in victory. And what's the very next verse After the victory comes, after the suffering, we read this. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. All you who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him but he has heard when he cried to him. And so we read of Christ, his suffering, and then his resurrection and his glorification. And it's at that point, now that he has finished his work, now that he has been exalted because of it, that now he names us his brothers as he sits at the right hand of God in glory. So not only does he call us brothers as he walks here on earth among us, but he calls us brothers now that he sits forever at the right hand of God. Now some other things from this quotation here. This this verse, I think, gives us a glimpse into the question of why Jesus came and why he suffered. When we read this, I will tell of your name to my brothers. It's an interesting phrase because as soon as Christ now is ascended to the right hand of the Father, the first thing that he says he is doing is proclaiming the name of God to his people. And this is something that we, we read about Christ in multiple places, that Christ came to reveal the Father to us. You know, we read in, in John 1 at the beginning there in verse 18, 
that no one has ever seen God, but that the only God at the right hand of the Father, he has made him known. He has explained him. So we have this reality that Jesus in coming to earth does so for the purpose of revealing the Father to us. And we even see that in Hebrews in the beginning of chapter 1 when we see that he is the imprint of the nature of his Father. Now, when we think of this question, why did Jesus come to earth to die? I think the first answer we would usually give is to save us from our sins. Why did Jesus come? He came to save us from our sins and from the wrath of God. But I think if we stop there, with just that statement, that we stop short of what salvation ultimately is actually accomplishing. Because it's certainly true that Christ comes to save us from our sins, and that's a glorious truth. But in a sense, that is a means to an end. That's a means to restoring something bigger, in a sense, than simply getting rid of sin. Christ came and died for us in order that we might know God. And delivering us from our sins was necessary in order for that goal to be reached. We cannot come to know God while we are still in our sin. Because our sin produces this separation from God that ultimately we cannot repair. And so Christ, in dying for us and taking our sin, that Simply saving us from our sin is merely the means to the end of actually bringing us to a knowledge of God. We think often of this fact that Christ came to give us eternal life. We think of John 3.16, that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have eternal life. And we have this dichotomy between eternal punishment and eternal life. We read in John 10, the good shepherd saying, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. And we see this theme of Jesus coming to give his people life. And when we think of this, this dichotomy between eternal death and eternal life, we think of sin produces eternal death. The, the wages of sin is death. And in the same way, the wages of the righteousness of Christ is eternal life. So formerly, while we were in our sin, we were deserving of death, and we were deserving of hell. But now in Christ, we stand righteous, and now we are deserving of heaven, not because of what we've done, but because we've been clothed in his merit. And almost synonymous in our thinking with eternal life and eternal death are the words heaven and hell. But eternal life, scripturally, is not merely continuous living in a place called heaven. And in a sense, if you wanted to pick a verse in scripture that you could use almost as, say, a dictionary definition of what is eternal life, and you could have a little definition. I think the the clearest passage would be in John 17. So if you want to turn over there very quickly with me, we'll spend just a few minutes here looking at the beginning of John 17. Now, this whole passage, the whole chapter of John 17 is kind of commonly known as the high priestly prayer of Christ. So as we're studying a book like Hebrews, where his priesthood is talked about a lot, I think this is a fitting text. 
But at the beginning of this prayer, we read this, the second half of verse 1. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So what is eternal life? Ultimately, eternal life is knowing God. And so Jesus, in coming to give us eternal life, in coming to save us from our sins, the end goal of that is so that we would come to know God. And ultimately, how is it that we come to know God? We come to know Him through Christ. We read in John 14 that anyone who has seen Christ has seen the Father. And we read that no one can come to the Father apart from the Son. And no one comes to the Son unless the Father draws him. So as we read in Hebrews 2 then, that Christ, after his suffering, after his glorification, his first role in a sense is to tell the name of his Father to his people. His mission when he came here on earth to make the Father known is now even his mission as he sits at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us and making known to us the Father. So really, when we, when we think about it in our Christian lives, we talk a lot about our being forgiven of our sin. But that is to lead us into fellowship with God. So if we, if we speak a lot, about our formerly being dead in trespasses and sins, and now God in His grace has made us alive in Christ. If we speak of that, but we don't seek to know God, if we want to claim the forgiveness, but we don't want to claim the fellowship, then we've not grasped what the forgiveness is about. The forgiveness is there to bring us into fellowship with God. And as the brothers of Christ, that is our place, is to have fellowship with our Father. Now in that second half of verse 12 in Hebrews 2, we we read a second phrase here. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. So we see in here another reason why Christ has come, and that is that he might bring worshipers to the Father. Now that he's ascended, he does two things, proclaims the name of God to his brothers and sings the praise of God in the midst of the congregation, or you could say in the church. One one commentator says you could translate it literally, I will sing hymns in the church. That makes it sound a little less uh, grand than the wording here, but I think it gets the point across that in a sense, Christ is our, as the people of God, Christ is our worship leader 
if you want to call it that. And in every sense of that word worship, both in how we live our lives and in the praise we give to God, Christ is the one who leads us in that. So he came in order to bring worshipers to the Father. And I think back to that text we were just looking at in John 17, right? What was the first thing, even before Christ said, you know, to know you is eternal life, he says, Father, the hour has come, glorify your Son. Why? That the Son may glorify you. And all through the book of John, when it speaks about Christ being glorified, John has kind of a unique perspective on a few things. In some of the Gospels, you see this, the crucifixion presented as the humiliation of Christ, the suffering of Christ, and then his resurrection and glorification as Christ being glorified. But in John's Gospel, he sees all three of those things as one event. And so he refers to the crucifixion in multiple places as Christ being lifted up. Um, And in some sense, in some passages, being lifted up in suffering, but in others, being lifted up in glory, but still speaking of, as as a total event, the crucifixion together with his resurrection and ascension. So when we read then in John 17, glorify your son, that the son might glorify you. In that glorification then is all three of those aspects, the crucifixion of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, and the ascension of Christ. And what is the goal of all of those things once Christ is finally ascended and back at the right hand of the Father? What does he do? He glorifies the Father. And here in Hebrews 2, he leads his brothers to do the same thing. He sings the praise of God in the midst of the congregation. So the two big things from this quotation, as brothers of Christ, we are given knowledge of the Father, and as brothers of Christ, we become worshipers of the Father. So let's move on here. Verse 13, we read this, and again, I will put my trust in him, and again, behold, I and the children God has given me. So if you'll turn with me again over to Isaiah chapter 8, we'll look at where these, these words are taken from. So Isaiah chapter 8, we'll begin our reading here in verse 11, and we'll read through verse 18. Verse 11, for the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread, but the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. 
Bind up the testimony. Seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. We'll end our reading there. So I want us to consider just a few brief things from this text. And we'll look at it first as it comes to us originally in the context of Isaiah. And then we'll look at why this is then applied to Christ. So when we read this originally, we come across in these first few verses, in verse 14, this phrase, a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling. And we know that in the New Testament, those words are applied to Christ himself as being that, that rock of stumbling. So we read this and we see there in those first few verses a prophecy about Christ. But as we move into verse 16, it seems like the text changes a little bit from a prophecy to almost something that's more biographical about Isaiah's life. Um, he's commanded here to bind up the testimony and seal the teaching. And then we have this, this declaration from Isaiah that he will wait for the Lord that he will hope in him, and that he and the children the Lord has given him are signs and portents in Israel. Now, for Isaiah in this passage, we see something that we see all through Scripture, this theme of God having, having a remnant of his people that are faithful in the midst of many who are not. And so it is here in this passage that we have the majority of Israel rejecting the prophecy that Isaiah is bringing, but we have, if you will, a, a remnant, these disciples that God has given to Isaiah who are remaining faithful. We read in verse 16, bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. So while Israel is rejecting the message and Isaiah and his disciples have, have this testimony with them, what does Isaiah do in the midst of being rejected by Israel? What is his response? Well, his response ultimately is to wait for the Lord and to hope in him, knowing that he and his disciples are signs and portents in Israel, almost like, like a warning sign standing in the midst of this, this generation that is rejecting the truth, standing almost a wrong way sign. And they're rejected for that, but they wait for the Lord. So as we come to Hebrews then, these verses are then applied to Christ. Christ, the phrase even, I will, I will trust in him, is attributed to Christ. So why is, why is that the case? And I want to suggest that it's for this reason that Christ, Isaiah is being rejected for being a witness to the truth. God has given him his word. God has given him a message. And as Isaiah proclaims it, he is met with opposition. Now, Christ himself is the truth. As we've seen earlier from Isaiah, Christ himself was the one who commissioned Isaiah in his ministry. He was the one that gave Isaiah his message. So now Christ, who is the truth, 
comes to earth as a man and as the truth is rejected by Israel, by his people. And what is Christ's response, as it were, to his being rejected by, by his generation? Well, I, I would almost be fearful to put these words in the mouth of Christ because it doesn't seem right. But the author of Hebrews does, that Christ himself responds by trusting in God. And he says, I will put my trust in him. Now, that's an interesting thing to think about, that Christ, as the eternal Son of God, now that he has come and taken on himself human flesh, he submits himself, in a sense, to some of the weakness of that flesh, so that when he, as a man, meets rejection, he responds, not ultimately by by conjuring up something within himself, but he responds by trusting in his Father. And in doing so, sets the example then for us as his people to do the same thing. I will put my trust in him. And the next phrase Hebrews gives us is, behold, I and the children God has given me. So we as the brothers of Christ, Christ who was the truth comes and is rejected. We as the brothers of Christ, in the context of Isaiah here, the children given together with the one to whom they are given are signs and portents. So Christ himself is the truth comes and is rejected. And now we as his people, we've been looking at this in Acts with Pastor Adam. We as his people now, as witnesses to that truth, are subject to that same rejection that Christ experienced. But we have an example in Christ now to trust in our Father because we are his sons and we are brothers of Christ. And we, we've thought about this idea a few times of perseverance being looking to Christ. And Hebrews, I think, just keeps expanding on this idea for us. How is it that, what is it about Christ that makes us persevere when we look to him? Well, when we are met with opposition in the course of our lives, when we are met by adversity because we are standing with Christ, because we are his brothers, and we experience the suffering he experienced. We look to him, and in him see one who for a little while was made lower than the angels, but now is crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. We see one who in his humanity trusted in God, And I dare say that if Christ himself trusted in the Father, we can be assured that our trust in the Father is not in vain. One older commentator writes this. He says, It ought not a little to encourage us to trust in God that we have Christ as our leader and instructor. For who would fear to go astray while following in his steps? Nay, there is no danger that our trust should be useless when we have it in common with Christ, who we know cannot be mistaken. So there's some assurance there that in our perseverance, we are persevering in 
believing, we're persevering in trusting. And we are assured that Christ himself persevered in his time on earth by trusting in his Father. So as we look to him, we see what it is to persevere. Now going back to Hebrews 2, very briefly, as we close. From these three quotations then, in our being identified as the brothers of Christ, in the, in the flow of the text, just throw this in really quick, in the flow of the text, this is kind of an aside. We have that um, it was fitting that Christ be made perfect through suffering, that he and those whom he sanctifies all have one source. And then there's this little interjection about him calling them brothers. And then the argument kind of comes back to what we had in verses 10 and 11 once we get to 14. But before we leave this little interjection about being brothers of Christ, it's important to note, I think, that the things that Hebrews tells us are the benefits of being brothers of Christ are not possible if Christ himself does not become man. And this goes back again to what we, what we brought up a few weeks ago of why was it necessary that Christ become a man? Why was it necessary that he take on human flesh? Could he not have done this simply as, as the divine son? But these things, if his revelation of the Father to us, his telling us the name of the Father, if his seeing the praise of the Father is the result of his suffering, that suffering cannot take place apart from his taking on human form. Christ in his deity, in his divinity, has no need to trust in one other than himself. As a human, as he becomes subject to the weaknesses of human flesh, he then sets us that example of trusting in God that we would not see were he not to become man. And ultimately, if Christ does not become man, we do not see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. The, the, the amazing things that the author of Hebrews gives us about Christ, we don't see if he does not become man. So all of these things that we benefit from by being the brothers of Christ, these things made it necessary for Christ to be made like us. And so our text continues in verse 14. That sense, therefore, the children whom God has given Christ, in verse, verse 13 there, sense, therefore, those children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. And we, we've looked at that, that concept a little bit in previous weeks. So, moving on here really quickly. Read in verse 15, deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Now that phrase, he helps the offspring of Abraham, I think it's an important phrase because especially to those who are originally reading this letter, who are Israelites, that phrase, the offspring of Abraham, that brings a lot of information with it in their minds. To be the offspring of Abraham is what it means to be the people of God. To Abraham was made the covenant 
that God would give him a land, that God would give him offspring as numerous as the sand of the seashore, that God would, in him and in his offspring, bless all the families of the earth. All of the promises that Israel has looked forward to through their entire history, all of those things are kind of signified by that phrase, the offspring of Abraham. So who is it that Christ has come to help? He has come to help the offspring of Abraham. And what we'll read here as we, as we continue on in Hebrews is that the offspring of Abraham are not merely the people who were physically descended from Abraham the forefather, but those who share the faith of Abraham. We read in, in Galatians that the true offspring of Abraham are those who are his offspring by faith. It says that if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring and heirs according to promise. So all of the promises that we read about in the Old Testament that are made to Abraham, all of those find their fruition in the one who comes to help the offspring of Abraham. And since he has come to help them, how did he have to do it? Read here in verse 17, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and a faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. We have to say from this text, because this is what the text says, that it was necessary for Christ to be made like us so that he would be merciful. It was necessary that he be made like us so that he would be a faithful high priest. As we've looked at before, a high priest must be a man. He is someone chosen from men to act on behalf of man in relation to God, Hebrews 5. So Christ, in becoming our high priest, had to be made like us, look at that phrase, in every respect. That's pretty amazing. That even, even the weaknesses of our physicality, Christ himself was made like us even in that. And experienced the suffering of that. Ultimately, so that he might be merciful toward us and faithful to us as our high priest. And then what do we have here in verse 18? Kind of the conclusion of the chapter. We read, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So in being made like us in every respect, Christ not only became subject to the, the weaknesses of, of physical flesh and the sufferings of that, he became subject even to the sufferings of temptation. That he might emerge over those temptations in victory in order that he might help us when we are tempted. So as you think about perseverance and looking to Christ, why is it that we persevere by looking to him? Because he himself has suffered in temptation. So when we encounter the very thing that draws us away from God, temptation to sin, when we experience the very thing that is tempting us not to persevere, 
we look to Christ and see one who experienced the same temptations we did at a greater intensity than we ever could and emerged victorious. And we need to look to him knowing as a reality that he helps us. We're not just supposed to look to him merely as an example, though we're supposed to look to him as that for sure. We look to him as the example of one who overcame, but also as the one who, because he overcame, now helps us. That's an amazing word. He helps us. And what's the conclusion then from the author of Hebrews? We'll look at chapter 3 next week. But just very briefly, these first couple verses, after we read all of this about Christ, his being made lower than the angels for a while, that he might experience the suffering of death, returning dominion to mankind in himself, suffering for us, bearing our sins, being the propitiation for our sins. And what's the conclusion? Therefore, holy brothers, brothers of one another and brothers of Christ, you who share in a heavenly calling, do what? Consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. We'll look at that text some next week. But in those first six verses, that first paragraph of chapter 3, there's no other action verb we're given to do as the application. Paul often in his letters will give some doctrine and then an application. This is true, therefore do this. The author of Hebrews says, this is true about Christ, therefore consider him. And here, later on in the book, we'll be given some very practical things. But here at the beginning, the author just wants our minds and our hearts turned to Christ, to look at him and to glory in him. And in doing that, then, we persevere. Well, our time is out, so we'll close in prayer and we'll be finished. Father in heaven, we do thank you once more for revealing yourself to us in Christ. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have called us your brothers. We thank you that you have given us a knowledge of our Father, our Heavenly Father. We thank you for the assurance of that and the privilege of it. And we ask that you would enable us now by your Spirit to live in that reality each day. We ask this in your name. Amen.